Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Kelvin Eng from Yale University. And I'm your host, Janala Adin from Columbia University. Fluid Jurisdictions, Colonial Law and Arabs in Southeast Asia, Cornell University Press 2020, by Professor Nurfadullah Yahya, is a wide-ranging, geographically ambitious book that tells the story of the Arab diaspora within the context of British and Dutch colonialism, unpacking the community's ambiguous embrace of European colonial authority in Southeast Asia. Here, Yahya looks at colonial legal infrastructure, discussing how it impacted and was impacted by Islam and ethnicity. But more importantly, she follows the actors who use this framework to advance their particular interests. She explains why Arab minorities in the, in the region help to fuel the entrenchment of European colonial legalities. Their itinerant lives made institutional records necessary. Securely stored in central, centralized repositories, such records could be presented as evidence in legal disputes. In order to ensure accountability down the line, Arab merchants valued notarial um, attestation land deeds, inheritance papers, and marriage certificates by recognized state officials. Colonial subjects continually played one jurisdiction against another, sometimes preferring that colonial legal authorities administer Islamic law, even against fellow Muslims. Fluent jurisdictions draws on lively material from multiple international archives to demonstrate the interplay between colonial projections of order and their realities. Arab navigation of legally plural systems in Southeast Asia and beyond, and the fraught and deeply human struggles that played themselves out between family, religious, contract, and commercial legal orders. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Fadila Yahya's approach to teaching and writing history, but also how she came to this project and some of the decisions that she made when assembling a cogent archive of legal and social life. I will also ask what can Southeast Asian history and Middle East history gain from Indian Ocean world studies. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Today we're here to talk to Professor Nur Fadila Yahya, the author of the groundbreaking book, Fluid Jurisdictions, Colonial Law and Arabs in Southeast Asia. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the fine-grained minutia of Hadrami diasporic existence in the Malay world of Southeast Asia, spanning British colonial Malaya and the Dutch East Indies to modern-day Indonesia, Malaysia, and Singapore. Nur Fadila Yahya is a legal historian of the Indian Ocean. She is currently profe- assistant professor at the History Department at National University of Singapore. She was a research fellow at the Asia Research Institute until June 2016. She is the editor of the World Legal History blog on Humanities and Social Sciences Online, HNET. She received her PhD in history from Princeton University in 2012. 
was a postdoctoral fellow in Islamic Studies in Washington University in St. Louis until June 2015. She has published journal articles in Law and History Review, Indonesia and the Malay World, and the Muslim World. Welcome, Fadila, to new books in the Indian Ocean world. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable book today. Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and who were some influential mentors you had? Thank you so much, Kelvin and Jana, for having me today. Um, to start off, yeah, let me say a few words about myself. I am a Singaporean, born and raised. I went to National University of Singapore for undergrad and majored in European Studies and English Literature, after which I did my Master's in History at the same institution. At Princeton University, I did my PhD in History. My committee members were Michael Laffan, Linda Colley, and Kasim Zaman. I took a class on religious authority with Qasim Zaman, which changed the way I thought about authority as being tied to legitimacy and therefore constantly shifting. It opened up my mind to possibilities that emerged during the colonial period when Muslim authority was usually subverted. What did people do then, I wanted to know. I was drawn to legal history when I participated in workshops in Program in Law and Public Affairs, LAPA, uh, at Princeton University, at the time directed by Kim Shapley. I workshopped all my dissertation chapters there over two or three years and received a lot of great feedback, and I found it to be a very welcoming and collaborative atmosphere. I also did the Hearst Legal History Workshop at Madison, Wisconsin, with Doug Hartog, who's also at Princeton. I would say that the number one person outside of Princeton who drew me into the field of legal history is Mitra Sharafi of University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the person who completely changed the way I view the Indian Ocean is Ng Seng Ho, who is, of course, at Duke. Rather poignantly, his book, Graves of Tarim, came out when I started graduate school at Princeton um, in 2006, and my work has been in conversation with his ever since, along with uh, newer works by Fahad Bashara, Isa Hussein, and Renisa Mawani. Thank you so much for that. that that's, a, that's a really rich um, intellectual itinerary that you had there. Um, and I think that what you were gesturing at towards the end was that your work exists in conversation with some of the other works in Middle East history, South Asia, uh, Southeast Asia history, and Indian Ocean history. And I was interested because as a historian primarily trained of Southeast Asia and of the Malay world, can you tell us how you became interested in this broader Indian Ocean world? And as a historian of these um, spaces, specifically and of an Arab diaspora, can you share with us what Southeast Asian studies and Middle East studies can gain from Indian Ocean world studies? Mm. I became I first became interested in the Indian Ocean uh when I was very young since my own history emerged out of this world my Indian and Arab ancestors sailed across the Indian Ocean to come to Southeast Asia in the 19th century and met my Chinese and Malay ancestors who were already here in the region I see the Indian Ocean as a world unto itself with Southeast Asia at the eastern end I definitely think 
it is impossible to write the history of the Indian Ocean without Southeast Asia. The pool of Southeast Asia is powerful because it is midway to China for many merchants historically for thousands of years. Southeast Asia was also a destination in its own right with a lot to offer. The eastern end of the Indian Ocean became more and more colonial towards the end of the 19th century, which held specific attractions for the Arab diaspora in two ways primarily, which we'll go into. The first being bureaucratization of family law records, that is uh, marriage and divorce records, also to some extent inheritance records, and the other being the management of wealth and property in Southeast Asia. So um, because I did my PhD at Princeton, I was very much influenced by um, institutional specialization because as you probably know, uh, Princeton is known for uh, specialization in uh, Islam and also the Middle East. So I think, uh, you know, it's because I did my PhD there, it influenced the way I thought about the Indian Ocean as being a world unto itself. Whereas if I had done my PhD at Yale or Cornell or Michigan, I think it would have been, I would have been more drawn to a um, Southeast Asian lens because those places uh, have more of a grounding in Southeast Asian studies historically. But because I went to Princeton, it's more, uh, you know, Islamic studies, uh, Near Eastern studies. I was influenced by that. I think that's how I became more and more interested in looking at the Indian Ocean uh, beyond my own personal interests, if you know what I mean. My intellectual interest in the Indian Ocean is very much shaped by my time at Princeton, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. It's uh, super interesting to see how the personal and the professionalization connect. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us how you came to write fluid jurisdictions. How did the idea develop? What was the research process like? What archives did you turn to? And, you know, for our graduate listeners, how was your writing experience? The project itself is very broad and um, it encompassed a huge geographical expanse because I deal with a diaspora. And I, when I was a graduate student, I, I tried to uh, get funding, actually, to go to Yemen. But at the time, uh, Yemen was already on the list of countries that uh, I was not able to proc- procure funding for through Princeton, so I didn't manage to go. Um, so my project became more of a... Southeast Asian story also, also because of that, you know, even though I didn't start out that way, I, I thought I, I could do the the Yemen story or like, you know, write it from the perspective of Yemen more so than uh, South, Southeast Asia. So it wasn't like a foregone conclusion that I was going to write about Southeast Asia just because of my background and also my uh, interests. Yeah, I tried to, I challenged myself, if you know what I mean. Uh, But yeah, that didn't happen. So I gravitated instead to uh, Southeast Asia. And I, the first archive that I went to was the Dutch archive. And that, uh, because of that, that also uh, shaped my 
my book quite a bit because in the Dutch archives, I encountered uh, many sources to do with uh, not Islamic law per se, but questions of jurisdiction. So uh, Dutch legal law reports were obsessed with uh, is this our jurisdiction? Is this not our jurisdiction? Is this a jurisdiction of the Islamic law court? Is this the jurisdiction of the uh, the Supreme Court in Batavia and so on and so forth? So it was it became a you know I I expected to find like intricacies of Islamic law you know like fake almost uh, in the deep in the Dutch archives but that's not what I found I found all these uh, questions. Uh, for for each other for for colonial for colonial judges uh you know, the colonial judges were asking each other are we fit to address this case basically is this our jurisdiction and so on and so forth so uh that 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 influenced the way I I thought I was like oh wow maybe this book will be about jurisdictions instead and you know in the end as you know it turned out to be about that and over the years uh the idea developed further. During many conversations I had with other scholars, uh, such as Mitra Sharafi, uh, Ng Seng Ho, Iza Hussein, Rohit Day, Kalyani Ramnath, and Renisa Mawani, because all of them deal with maritime spaces, uh, and uh, I was, you know, that's what I work on, and I, uh, it's something new. Also, the field is not really, you know, this sort of thing is. So I needed to bounce off my ideas with people and these are the people that I spoke to. And over time, I became increasingly convinced that even colonial jurisdictions in the period commonly known as High Empire were not fixed. Uh, rather, they, they are what people made them out to be. Uh, even during this period of High Empire where colonialism was at its peak. I mean, now we know it was at its peak. I also discovered in my Dutch records, as I said to you before, that courts were not averse to declaring themselves incompetent. As in, you know, intuitively, you might think that colonial courts might want to hold on to their jurisdictions and be like, yes, we'll rule over this. Because to rule over this case will be to rule over people. But that was not the case. In fact, most... Uh, in certain years, during certain periods in the 1890s and 1900s, I saw that the, the courts, the court judges in the Netherlands Indies preferred to not uh, rule on cases. Uh, and that in itself is an interesting phenomenon that needs to be explained. And they prefer, they defer judgment to, to others, you know, to other courts, to other judges in other jurisdictions. So I sought to find out the extent to which colonial subjects were able to make their own jurisdictions because this was clearly a period of uncertainty. And, uh, you know, I was interested to see how they took advantage of colonial courts' unwillingness to judge on certain matters such as religious affairs. Yeah. That's that's really wonderfully put, I think. Um, and that leads us very nicely to, to the book and its chapters. The book addresses a broad range of archival material and thematic concerns in a succinct 171 pages. Can you share with us how you organized the book chronologically and thematically? And who were the intended primary theoretical interlocutors in this work? What historiographical intervention were you seeking to make in, in this book? Mm. Yeah, so I organized each chapter chronologically according to what happened. 
Um, and my initial plan was actually to weave the stories of both col- colonies together and intersperse their narrative smoothly because I did not want to adhere to colonial boundaries. Um, I was very much inspired by the work of Eric Dalia Kozo in this particular aspect. So I was hoping to continue in that tradition. But in terms of law and jurisdictions, I quickly discovered that this was really hard to do, which is not surprising because uh, jurisdictions were territorial at this point and they did not follow persons. You know, they didn't they they were not individual they were not planted individually, they were tied to territory. So I did not find this to be the case. Uh, one thing that I really hope to find in the archives is the story of clans or families that traverse boundaries. And of course, we all know that clans and families traverse boundaries, right? Uh, and I did find several examples, which was great. Like the case of uh, Fatima bin Obud bin Saleh bin Abdad, which we'll, we will talk about later on. So that's one thing that I found that ties in nicely with what I wanted to do in in um, not uh, you know in uh, to, to tell the story that you know colonialism was not the only uh, defining uh, organizing uh, lens through which we can study history even though I look at legal jurisdictions so one would think that that would be the case but it wasn't really so that's what I tried to do as far as possible in my in my book yeah uh, I was in my in writing this book um, I was basically trying to prove that Islamic law was at this time more or less hollowed out of meaning uh, not by not just by the colonialists but also to some extent quite surprisingly by Muslim subjects themselves in order to gain material benefits uh, in this lifetime so it's to cut at uh, literature on Islamic law which assume that Muslims wanted to be good Muslims and adhere to to Islamic law, which is what the colonialists also thought, you know, that um, unlike other people, uh, Muslims are very sensitive, were very sensitive about Islamic law and we shouldn't touch it because, you know, they will be very angry and stuff like that. Um, So I was trying to cut at that view, uh, which scholars also tend to abide by, you know, and, and, and regard Muslims as being people who wanted to abide by Islamic law, which was not the case. Um, like other people, they, they were selfish, they were patriarchal, you know, they, they exploited situations that they could in order to gain immediate benefit and so on and so forth. So that's what I was... Uh, trying to write against, if you know what I mean. And the other, the second thing is that um, I also wanted to show that Islamic law was used, was referenced uh, copiously by everybody uh, at this time, but uh, in particular ways in order to further their ambitions. So like, 
if it helps them in that case, then they would use Islamic law. It's like Islamic law says this, you know what I mean? So they were not like using it in that rich way that uh, a lot of scholars of Islamic law ideally uh, imagine Muslims doing it, if you know what I mean. They were they they used it in, in a way that's quite cynical, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it became a matter of jurisdiction more than the intricacies of Islamic law itself in the end. Yes. That's that's really interesting. And I think that that relates to the very title of your book, right? Fluid Jurisdictions. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the term. What does the term imply and how does it relate to scholarship on legal pluralism? And how did the overlapping and competing British and Dutch territorial jurisdictions create new spaces for thinking about territory, authority, and forms of law? Mm. Yeah, so this term is something that I came up with. Um, and I was basically, in coming up with this term, I was struck by what I saw in the in the in my in my archival records in that forum shopping became more of a possibility for colonial subjects to get what they wanted. You know, so if they didn't get something within uh, Islamic jurisdictions, be it in Hadramaut or in British Malaya on the peninsula or something like that, they would go to say Penang or Singapore or Batavia or what or wherever to get what they wanted. Um, ironically, under oppressive structures, colonial jurisdictions formed, provided additional options that some colonial subjects were drawn to, even when they were not forced to. You know, as you as you as you can imagine, most people were forced to. You know, they were living in these places, so they were subjected to these laws, to these colonial jurisdictions. But there were a lot of people who were not or had the freedom to move to another jurisdiction, you know, and yet they didn't. So my book tells the story of how some people were forced, while others remarkably chose to subject themselves to colonial jurisdictions. Through bureaucracy, colonial bureaucracy that is, or by calling upon colonial lists, either government officials or judges, to rein in their errant family members and you know unfortunately it's mostly women that were reined in and also you know equally disturbingly to subvert the authority of indigenous Muslims in Southeast Asia itself yeah so legal pluralism was weaponized as an uh, and became an arena of competition by uh, Muslim subjects against each other sometimes yeah, so that's why I, I highlighted in my in my book. I mean, it's you know, it's a it's something that's not known usually because people assume you know often even scholars assume that Muslims acted as as a as one interest group as a as a constituency, if you know what I mean. But that was not the case that I found. Uh, there was a lot of disunity, a lot of competition within this interest group for supremacy in terms of authority in fact yeah right and uh, for our listeners interested in legal history and even social history what sources manuscripts or documents are available to us and them uh, and on law and social life law reports form the bulk of my sources and i i can't do without them um some of them pertain to family law you know, most of them, the ones that, the ones that I read, 
they put in family law, and so they have stories built in them through the testimonies of people. <laughs> and and I'm privy to a lot of uh, family secrets. You know, some some of them are quite salacious. Um, I I also rely heavily on uh, certificates of appointments of people in positions of authority. Uh, and um, I rely also on uh, on the stuff that's written about them when they step down, you know, and what they did, you know, the, the, the policies that they introduced or suggested to higher powers and stuff like that. Um, I also rely heavily on, as you can imagine, newspaper reports. And um, they often supplement my law reports because for a time, both Dutch and British newspapers, colonial newspapers in the region, uh, published court proceedings verbatim, which was amazing. They stopped after some time, unfortunately. But when they when they did it, it was great. You know, it was great for me to to see what people said, and you know, someone you know like a judge would uh, display discomfort over uh, some salacious details that were being uh, said in court and he would shift in his seat and people and they would write about it and stuff like that you know yeah and like people would be like people would clamor and be like unfair you know stop this right now or like this is this is slender you know fitna and stuff like that people would shout things like that and uh and uh this would be recorded also in the in the newspaper reports which was amazing yeah, but in, in both colonies, unfortunately, uh, this practice did not last. And uh, yeah, but for a time they did. And it was it was great for me to to read them. The other uh, corpus of sources that I relied on were novels and works of fiction, basically short stories also. Um, and this was what I found uh, mostly in the Dutch East Indies where Indo-Dutch uh, authors... Uh, such as Edgar Duperon, uh, wrote about their communities. And they were mixed, usually. They were, they were, they tend to be, like Duperon, they, ten, they tend to be half European, half Indonesian, usually half Javanese, and speak both languages very well. In fact, they would speak Javanese better, or like speak Indonesian better than their, uh, than French or Dutch, you know depending on their heritage uh, because they live there, they were born there and they would have like a finely grained view of their milieu, you know? And uh, also for what I can see, because they are mostly writing in Dutch and mostly in terms of heritage, they were Dutch, if you know what I mean, classified as European in the Netherlands Indies, they were, their racial prejudices uh, shown through, you know, so I could I could see from a colonial lens what was thought of uh, the Javanese, the Malays, the uh, Chinese, and the Arabs. Yeah, and they were different kind of being uh, works of fiction. They were they form a, a different kind of source, obviously, for me, and uh, I couldn't rely upon them too much because of that, because they were mostly based on people who didn't exist actually they were clear about it well at least they claim you know that these people didn't exist uh i suspect that these people were actually their neighbors and such if you know what i mean you know but yeah so that was uh a very there was a there was a form there was a form of source that i came 
to discover uh, quite late, you know. I for 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 some time I I didn't uh, I stayed away from non I stayed away from fiction sources if you know what I mean. Uh, but I came to realize that they were very rich, yeah, and gave me a different view of 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 life you know, side by side with other people, the, the plural society that people were living in, yeah. And I think that that's such a rich way to conceptualize of the archive, right? Not just as a bounded set of legal or political documents, but also the archive of social life that you get through reading all these texts um, about about social life, about quotidian life uh, of every every everyday people. Um, and I think that for our readers who are not as familiar with this world, could you tell us who the Hadramis were? They are the primary actors in your account, and I know that there's been a few recent works on the Hadrami diaspora across the Indian Ocean. But who were they, and how did they find themselves in the Malay world uh, mm. during this time and period? Mm. Yeah, they were in. They, they came from Hadramaut, which is now in Yemen, and they were from a coastal region, which is very dry and arid. Uh, Linda Boxberger says that more than 30% of Hadramis are living abroad at any one time. Um, and a substantial portion are found in Southeast Asia. But most of the Hadramis living abroad are actually found in, in India, in on the, in the on the subcontinent. And these Hadramis were glossed as Arabs abroad. Uh, most Arabs in Southeast Asia are from Hadramaut or draw ancestry from Hadramaut, but not exclusively so. Um, they come from all over the Middle East, from places like Egypt, for example, Tunisia, Morocco. But most of most of the Arabs, uh, most of the people who identify as Arabs in Southeast Asia come from uh, Hadramaut. And um, in my book, I use the term Arabs because they identify as such in Southeast Asia and were also identified as such by other people uh, in Southeast Asia. Not, not Hadramis per se. Yeah. Um, some of the Hadramis came from Hadramaut, but their families actually came from somewhere else uh, before Hadramaut. Yeah. Like some of their families came from what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, Iraq also and so on and so forth. Like my family, for example, came from uh, Basra and were in uh, in Hadramaut for a century before traveling across the Indian Ocean. So yeah, you know, so even though they were there, um, they came from, they might have come from somewhere else before that. Um, Arabs in the in British Malaya and the British Strait settlements uh, are glossed, are generalized as Muslims by British authorities and grouped together with other Muslims unproblem- unproblematically from a legal standpoint. So they were grouped together with Malays, uh, Indian Muslims, uh, Javanese, Bugis, and so on and so forth. But in the Netherlands Indies, they fell under separate colonial classification of Fremde Osterlingen, foreign Orientals, which includes, which included Japanese, Chinese, 
Siamese and sometimes Malays as well, depending on the location in the vast uh, Indonesian archipelago. Uh, they were grouped together with people who were classified as natives. So these natives were mostly Javanese. The only people who did not run the risk of being classified as foreign orientals were actually Javanese. They were almost exclusively always natives unless they were uh, royalty or nobility you know, like the regions and the, the Bupati and stuff like that, they would sometimes be classified as Europeans. Not foreign orientals, but Europeans. So they were either Europeans or natives. Yeah. But the, the you know, the only people who did not uh, run the risk of being classified as uh, non-natives, always natives, is uh, are the Javanese, the... the uh, Javanese commoners, basically. They are the only people who were not. So, like, everybody else, like, uh, uh, the people of uh, the, the Minangkabau, they are sometimes foreign orientals. The Malays are also sometimes foreign orientals if they are found outside of Sumatra, for example. Like, if they are in Sulawesi, they will be foreign orientals, you know what I mean? So, it got really, it got really ridiculous, you know? And uh, if they're in Java, they might be foreign orientals as well. Even, you know, they're Malays, they're from the region, but they are classified as... Because the Dutch determined that you should stick to wherever you're, you're supposed to be from. And they identify, you know, like the Bugis have to be in Sulawesi. So, if they are found in, say, Java, they're foreign orientals, you know what I mean? So, if, like, if, you are, if you're outside of the place you're supposed to be at, you are a foreigner in that place. And therefore, classified as foreign orientals in that place, in the island, on that island. So there are ten thousand uh, habitable islands in Indonesia, and so it got really messy really quickly. If you know what I mean, yeah, if you can imagine. Um, so the Arabs were grouped together with people who were classified as natives in matters of family law, which was basically based on Islamic law and adat, customary law. In matters of commercial law. They were grouped together with Europeans and other foreign orientals. Yeah. And in the group known as foreign orientals, they were their position was the haziest, the blurriest, because they had uh they had more of a relationship with the natives, the people classified as natives, because they share the same religious faith uh with the majority of the natives, which is Islam. And often intermarried these people, intermarried with these people, intermarried with the Javanese and so on. And uh, so they were, you know, they were the most, uh, the hardest for the Dutch to pin down. Yeah. As we continue to think about colonial categories and, and colonial legal histories often focus on the ways in which colonial authorities codified and, and fixed often flexible legal systems, what they considered to be traditions or customs into a set of rigid legal legal procedures and interpretation. Could you tell us about how the Adat was distinct from and functioned with Islamic law prior to and during the colonial period? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Adat was very confusing for uh, everyone um, because uh, the Dutch had committed to observing Adat and, you know, com- committed to upholding Adat. Um, over time, as far as I can see, they upheld Adat at the expense of Islamic law. So basically, they bifurcated Adat and Islamic law. Even though Muslims 
in the Nether Indies, you know, in Muslim Southeast Asia tended not to bifurcate it like that. Like, oh, this is Islamic law. Oh, this is other. You know, they didn't do that. They were just doing law, you know, and it's, it's, everything's Islamic law, if you know what I mean. As long as it doesn't go against uh, Islamic legal principles, as you know. So they didn't they didn't bifurcate it like that, but the Dutch did and were obsessed with it and found people who were sympathetic to this schema, you know. People who also who also think uh, Muslims also thought that one should bifurcate uh, in this manner because they thought that Adat was problematic or non Islamic or something like that. And wanted to purify Islamic law as practiced in Southeast Asia and stuff like that. So they found people like that. And some of these people were Arabs, you know, and they and they played it up. These Arabs played it up in the eyes of the colonialists, especially the Dutch. And they were like, yeah, you know, these Southeast Asians, they are not very Islamic, so you should listen to me because I'm Arab, you know, and I know Arabic and I am, uh, I have knowledge of Islamic law, uh, maybe, right? And and have went to this school and that school, have studied in Egypt, studied in Saudi, uh, Saudi studied in Arabia, studied in Hadramaut, and these are my credentials, and therefore you should listen to me. So there were people like that, and um, they were very much interested in this as well. And the Dutch were also, also had were also interested in this, but politically they were not inclined to implement uh, Islamic law at the expense of Adat for political reasons because they didn't want to give uh, these Arabs. Um, power, so they they were more inclined to support the natives who wanted to. Uh, when 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 there are two things involved, and one is you know customary law slash adat, the other one is Islamic law. They're more inclined to implement adat than Islamic law, in, in when they in 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 uh in public, if you know what I mean, because they didn't want to give too much power and authority to to Arabs, but in the Behind the scenes, in the colonial journals, uh, which I which I read, they were very much interested in uh, this bifurcation. And more often than not, they gave more props to Islamic law in private. So they would be like, they would be writing to each other only. They would, you know, like Snow Hugronia would, Christian Snow Hugronia would only write to like uh, Vandenberg, you know, and they would talk about it right back and forth and they would be like yeah actually Islamic law is much uh, sounder than Adat you know so they also had that sort of orientalist view of Adat being less than Islamic law you know what I mean because they were like you know Islamic law is, is closer to what they knew you know having studied in institutes in, in Delft and Leiden on Islam so they were more drawn to that they, 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 they thought Islamic law had more authority had more grounding and uh did not did not um, view Adat po- positively, but in in public, like I said, they were very uh, careful not to uh, give uh, Arabs who with whom they actually empathize with on an intellectual level uh, too much power and authority. So it's very complicated uh, what what they were doing, and it's it's a. Uh, you know the the Arabs themselves, like for example, there was one man called Syed Uthman bin Yahya. He allied with Snook, and um, this is something that Nico Captain has written about uh, in his book. And you know he, they collaborated, and Snook was actually very sympathetic with 
to his ideas and and regarded him highly and he seemed to also regard Snook very highly and they were simpatico but in the end uh, the Dutch even Snook himself warned against giving all these Arabs who were uh, descendants of the Prophet especially too much power and authority and favoured in public the the native courts instead known as the Pristaraden even though you know Syed Uthman was very much uh, regarded them as a problem you know regarded them as not Islamic enough and stuff like that too much adat and you know stuff like that yeah so that's what that's what happened in the in the Netherlands Indies in the in the British settlements it was completely different yeah uh, which I can talk about more uh, later on but it's reading your book, you really see the contradictions of trying to bifurcate the Adat from Islamic law in the cases that you present. Um, I was wondering if you can speak about the significance of the Mohammedan marriage ordinance of 1880 and then the ways that it represented a rupture in colonial authority. And also, you focus um, on the case of Fatma bin Abud bin Salih bin Abad. Um, why did that garner so much attention? And what were the implications of this case for? the subsequent paramountcy of paper technology. Um, relatedly, why did the family become such a space of legal maneuvering and contestation? Right. Yeah, so in the British trade settlements, it was completely different. Um, it was more dramatic, I would argue, um, because the Arab elite, they inaugurated a new legal and bureaucratic regime um, after the Strait Settlements became a crown colony. So previously, it was not a crown colony. It was ruled by the India office. And um, India ha- had a hold over the Strait Settlements, which, which consists of Penang, Malacca, and Singapore. But post-1867, the British in the Strait Settlements was more em- became more empowered because they, they were ruled directly by the colonial office and could bypass India if you know what I mean. So they were like, okay, now we're at the top of the hierarchy. You know, previously we were like a lesser colony. Yeah. So the period post is 1867 saw a confluence of many factors. The main one being the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869 and the rise of the steamship as a mode of travel independent of the monsoon. So together this led to a rise in the number of Hadramis who travel across the Indian Ocean. It led to a spike in the number of Arab migrants in the decades that followed. So the Arab elite, they wrote a petition to the British government in 1875, which led directly to the passing of the Mohammedan marriage ordinance in 1880. It came into being, um, it was promulgated two years later in 1882. And basically the Arabs the Arab elite alleged that local Qadis, like Malay Qadis, Javanese Qadis, and also the South Asian Qadis, both North Indian and South Indian Qadis, were corrupt in granting their wives divorces by proxy when they left the colony to conduct business. So like, some of them even went back to Hadramaut and came back again, found that their wives had divorced them and stuff like that. Because it's been years, you know, because during this time of monsoon travel, that's what happened. Um, so the Arab elite channeled their efforts towards uh, bureaucratization of marriage and divorce records and uh, and also asked that uh, only one Qadi be appointed for the whole settlement. So like Singapore would, would only have one Qadi, Penang would have one Qadi and Malacca would have one Qadi. When previously they had like 
many cardies, you know, like like for each community. So maybe it's like 25 cardies per settlement. And uh, they also asked that marriages and divorces had to be recorded from then onward with the British registrar overseeing operations. And ultimately, this deepened British legal authority uh, in family law in the colony. So that's what happened. Um, the case of... There were, there were actually two cases involving two Fatimas that I focused on. Uh, both Fatimas were Arab and the first Fatima... Uh, her case was in 1875, 1878, and that led to the Muhammadan marriage ordinance. And the second case is the one that you just asked me about, was about 44 years later, 46 years later, in 1924. And that is the case of Fatima bin Abud bin Salih bin Abdad, who was a widow of a wealthy uh, merchant of Batavia in, in Java. So even though her case was in... Singapore, which is British colony, she actually got her, she actually got married, uh, in Batavia, and also was a businesswoman there, and most of her wealth was was in Bat- Batavia, and Surabaya, also in Java. So her husband died in March nineteen twenty. He was very, he was immensely wealthy, one of the wealthiest men in, uh, in in Batavia at the time. She was also a businesswoman herself, like I said. Um, her father managed her property in Java when she became a widow. And in December 1924, she sued her father, Sheikh Ubud bin Salim bin Abdad, for making her sign a document that uh, was a contract of sale to him. And she claimed that she didn't know that that was what she was signing. And it was a huge amount, 30,000 guilders, out of the estate of her late husband. She listed her father's other wrongdoings in court. It later transpired that her father also prevented her from getting married to a man of her own choice by managing her property in, in such a way. So he, he kind of like uh, kept her property hostage. Like if you, you know, if she had married this man, then he would have prevented her from getting access to her property or something like that. So because she had been married before, uh, she could get married without her father's consent. So property became the only way that her father could control her. So that's how it happened. And the case of Fatima got a lot of attention for about three years or so until 1926. Primarily from what I can see, because it involved an Arab woman and the press was just all over that, you know. Uh, They were very much drawn to it because she was a wealthy woman and she went against her own father. Uh, It was very sensational at the time. Fatima also kept Purda. Uh, it was believed a uh, uh, religious practice of seclusion by women simply because she wore a headscarf and a veil, which was very, very rare at the time. Um, but I don't think this is true, but that was what the journalist said, you know, that she was, I mean, you know, I don't think that she, she secluded herself, but the, 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 the colonial newspapers thought that she did simply because of how she was dressed, if you know what I mean. So there was that attraction as well by the public, who were obsessed with seeing her face, you know. So it was uh, the the Swiss reported it in in all kinds of uh, uh, orientalist tropes, using all kinds of orientalist tropes, you know, the scarf falling across her face and stuff like that. What she was wearing, her slippers and stuff like that. Yeah. So the another thing that I I also found is that you know why you know back to your question about why they, it got a lot of attention is is because women rarely spoke actually in open court. Uh, and so more weight tended to be ascribed to them when they did. 
there was a certain kind of power that their words yielded and the uh, judges uh, reporters lawyers uh, other litigants uh, seem to perk up when they do speak but you know at the same time all these people that I just mentioned remain nervous about women's wide latitude for action especially if they boldly went against the wishes of their legal guardians so women, women's liberty were seen as was often seen in court and, and also in the press as corrosion of virtue as Durba Mitra's book Indian Sex Life shows quite well you know, the judges oscillated between acknowledging uh, Fatima's independence and her lack of agency as a woman which they imagined you know so British judges would seem to be deeply unaccustomed to women handling their own affairs. And this was very much apparent in the way they treated Fatima as being alternatingly helpless. And then, you know, it's sometimes in the same breath, financially savvy and independent at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's really interesting because I think it also speaks to the sort of indeterminate relationship of gender to the law and how central gender is as a as a structure when it comes to how women interacted with, with the legal apparatus, right? Um, I I was actually really interested in how this might relate to the instrument that you call Surat Kwasa or Letters of Power. So briefly, what are examples of the different kinds and uses of powers uh, of attorney that you highlight in your account? And how did the frequent usage of power uh, of the power of attorney allow it to assume a central import? durability and purchase among the Arab diaspora. And specifically, how did women wield powers of attorney and what did powers of attorney enable women to do in terms of property holdings or other um, aspects of economic independence? Mm. Yeah, the surat kuasa or sometimes just known as surat as a letter. So it shows you that, you know, people just know what it is. Like, oh, this is not, this is, if you say, if you simply say surat letter, it, it means surat kuasa. So you can you can see that it has a lot of it really had a lot of purchase in the region, uh, in both the Netherlands Indies and in the Swiss settlements. Uh, the surat kuasa are powers of attorney, which were very which are very versatile legal instruments used copiously by the Arab diaspora. Essentially, a power of attorney is a contract that allowed one to handle one's business remotely by transferring power to someone else living elsewhere, who was more able to handle specific transactions that needed to be done in person and would know the law of the place better. Quite commonly, an Arab person living in Hadramaut who inherited property or, you know, the, who inherited property that was based in Southeast Asia, so usually it's real estate, landed property based in Southeast Asia, uh, would do so, would grant power to someone in Southeast Asia. Or sometimes, uh, that an Arab person who had returned from Southeast Asia will grant power to 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 their relatives, business partner or friends to handle their business affairs to manage their property. So several powers of attorney that I encountered were created by women who, who inherited their property from their husbands who had recently died. Uh, sometimes they also inherited property from their sons or from their brothers, but usually it's from it's it's through their their. Uh, recently deceased husbands. So they often transferred management of their property to their brothers or brothers-in-law or fathers or nephews. Since women do inherit and control their own property according to Islamic law, Arab women in mercantile families had to explicitly appoint someone if they wish to delegate the administration of their property. Otherwise, nobody can do anything. 
So they kept on revoking and granting power to several people across time because people uh, die or they moved away or they proved to be incompetent or even corrupt. Yeah, so they kept on changing, reappointing, revoking, reappointing powers of attorney, etc., etc., across time. So I think that uh, you know that this phenomenon shouldn't be cast as an abdication of power entirely by women. Although we have to concede that in the everyday they did not handle their own affairs for sure, and there was a time lag, obviously. Before they discover things have gone wrong, either because their appointed attorney have passed away, or there was some uh, corruption going on, or something like that. Yeah. So that so a lot of things happen uh, usually before they find out. Yeah. According to Islamic law, they had to 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 waive their authority, grant authority. They had to sign documents, you know, such as powers of attorney. They also had to continue giving testimony in court because giving giving power, transferring power to an attorney is not is not an abdication of power. So they still had to appear in court. Um, in both in you know in Hadramaut or in the Netherlands Indies, so it's very difficult. Sometimes you have to uh, appoint another attorney to to, to uh, appear in court in their stead and stuff like that. So it gets really complicated. It's like one power of attorney leads to a pro- proliferation of powers of attorney sometimes as more and more things need to be handled. But one thing that I also noticed is that uh, British and Dutch colonial legal authorities were very unaccustomed uh, to women handling their own affairs. So they were very much comfortable with the fact that this attorney, you know, this person who has been granted power of attorney standing before them in Dutch courts or British courts is a man and um, are uncomfortable that this man uh, is doing the bidding of a woman and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and we see this again and again, like I, you know, like I said, uh, in response to your previous question on, on Fatima bin Abdad. Yeah. We see this discomfort a lot. Yeah. So it's not a matter of a, a white man saving brown women from brown men, uh, to paraphrase uh, Gayatri Spivak. It's not a straightforward case of that. It's more like, uh, yeah, okay, fine. But then now we don't know what to do with these brown women either. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that there's a sort of like access that uh, cannot be captured in, mm. in even the most totalizing, the most comprehensive legal projects that that still nonetheless um, cannot capture this sort of like access uh, of, of, like, of like women's human action, right? Um, I was actually also really interested in how were notions of Arab difference produced either legally, economically, or sartorially during this period? Because throughout your account, we see that the production of Arab difference is quite different in the British street settlements than in the Dutch East Indies. So could you explain why the British and Dutch authorities differed in their legal categorization and treatment of the privileges they afforded to the Arab diaspora and other foreign orientals? Mm. Yeah, it was very different. They were they were on extreme ends of each other. Um, the British were regarded the Arabs as allies, um, generalized them as merchants, you know? Like, oh, these Arabs, they, they tend to be wealthy, they tend to bring wealth to the colony. Uh, the colony, the street settlements were also port cities. And so, commerce was the raison d'etre of these colonies, of this colony. And so, they were, you know, merchants were exalted. Not just Arabs, of course, but other people as well. Asian subjects who were rich, 
Yeah, they wanted capital to be kept in the colony, so made the colony very welcoming, tried their best to make the colony very welcoming to capital, people who have capital. Whereas the Dutch regarded the the uh, merchants as rivals, mercantile rivals uh, to themselves. So oppress these people, you know, the Chinese and the Arabs, for example, uh, profile them, racialize them as people to be oppressed because they were seen as rivals to the Dutch. People who had undue influence over the natives and stuff like that. And that's the language that they used, you know, undue influence and whatnot. So that was why um, they had very vastly different approaches to the same group of people. And over time, the Arabs who uh, were very, very wealthy, like, for example, the Bin Talib clan, they were able to um, break through uh, travel restrictions and move their capital to Singapore Yeah, in the early 20th century. So some of them managed to make that leap. It was very difficult because uh, there were travel restrictions applied to foreign orientals. Uh, it was, you know, it's... it's it was incredibly difficult to, to, to make that leap, but they, some of them did. Yeah, if they were very, very wealthy, they, they often managed to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, and, and related to the notion of Arab difference, what were some of the anxieties that emerged surrounding the category of European, which was sort of this unofficial third category? And how did the potential slippage of Arab identity into this category threaten prevailing racial hierarchies? You know, for example, um, you mentioned that some Arabs tried to claim European status by associating themselves with the Ottoman Empire because Istanbul is partially located in Europe. Yes. So the the Arabs were... um, To the Dutch, the Arabs were very far from being European and really resented that, um, you know, during that period. In the ni- early 1900s, the, the, the Arabs tried to make that leap to the European category through their loose affiliation with the Ottoman Empire. Um, it was very interesting um, and very creative, I would say. <laughs> Uh, simply because Hadramaut was not, strictly speaking, part of the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. And um, the Arabs were, um, in the group known as foreign Orientals, the Arabs were the, the furthest away from being European because there's always a spectrum. And in that spectrum, known as foreign Orientals, the Japanese were closest to being European. Uh, some Chinese, very few Chinese also were also associated with Europeanness, but the Arabs were not because they were closest to natives due to their shared religious faith and frequent intermarriages. Yeah. And uh, they were, as a result, the Dutch were not worried about European prestige or white prestige in the way that Anne Stoller writes about in her book, Carnal Knowledge and Imperial Power, because they were like, beyond, you know what I mean? They were beyond the fray of being European, actually. So it might have, must have rankled them so much that, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, that when the when the Arabs tried to be, to claim European status. Uh, yeah, mainly, uh, the, the Dutch became really worried that the Arabs were too close to the natives. So they were worried about that end of... Uh, 
slippage. So it's not the slippage into European um, identity that they were worried about ultimately. Apart from the the brief moment when uh, the Sam Hadramis uh, claimed Ottoman subjecthood, yeah, in the 1890s and early 1900s. They were more worried about the other end when the you know where, where the the Arabs claimed uh, that they were natives because natives had privileges they could own land and stuff like that which the foreign orientals were deliberately deprived of by the Dutch. Right, and sometimes in your book it comes out that Arabs really claim to this distinct category from natives, and sometimes they try to show their their close relationship to to the category of, of native. Um, what was the central claim advanced by the 60 Arab petitioners of Surabaya on the grounds of Islamic law and customary law, uh, which is sort of related to this? And more broadly, what was the influence of the Arab elite on Islamic law, particularly mm. with regard, regard to Kafat? Kafat, yeah. So the, the Arabs were very much concerned with uh, marriage and... Uh, divorce in the same way that their counterparts were in the Swiss settlements and uh, petitioned uh, Dutch authorities and gained sympathy from Snook uh, who expressed sympathy with them in private but decided not to accede to their requests for the reasons I told you just now in that Arabs should not be given too much power, you know, and stuff like that. So um, they were also very much concerned with the Prister Raden, uh, which was headed by Javanese Qadis usually, and who granted divorces to their Javanese wives uh, and in their absence, yeah. So they were very much concerned with that and alleged that these Pristaradan were not uh, implementing Islamic law properly and stuff like that. So they had their own definition of what is proper Islamic law and stuff like that. And uh, the there was another petition later on, about four years later after this Surabaya petition by by the Arabs of Batavia. So it's basically, you know, Batavia and Surabaya had a high, had a large proportion of uh, Arabs up to seven percent in of the of the population of the the subject population in the in the in the in both cities, and so they had clout and uh, could do that sort of thing, could send petitions, be listened to, and stuff like that. Ultimately, their requests were not uh, granted, but they were. It was record. Their displeasure was recorded, and it was very interesting. To, uh, to see how they also tried to police their their women, yeah. And uh, one thing that emerged out of these petitions were was the idea of a mixed marriage, which uh, in Islam is not really there. You know, any marriage between two Muslims is uh, legit. You know, is halal and is is fulfills kafaa. But according to these Arabs especially the Arabs who were descendants of the Prophet, uh, they do not. They were not. They do not fulfill the qualification of kafa'a in the sense that um, if a female descendant of the Prophet were to marry a non-descendant, uh, that, is, that, that, is not a, that is not a legit marriage. The marriage should be annulled. Uh, this is something that the Dutch recognized as Arab Adat. It was really interesting because, you know, one of the main questions that the, the, the Dutch 
obsessed about in their Tate Scriften, the the colonial journals, was what is Arabia Rekt? You know, what is Arabia Rekt? It's uh, basically Arab Adat. And the only Adat that they found uh, that could apply to the Arabs possibly was this. Was this notion of Kafa'a uh, in that female descendants of the Prophet should marry male descendants of the Prophet, otherwise the marriage is null, was null. So they discussed it in the, uh, in the text Scriften, and I did find a, a, a one quote book, one legal quote book, uh, which is not well known, which actually has this appendix called Arabia Recht, you know, the laws of the Arabs, Arabia Ren Recht, actually. And this was the only thing that was on the page. Whereas, you know, as you can imagine, the laws of the Adat laws of the Javanese or the Bugis or the Malays and so on were very long, running pages upon pages, intricate laws uh, pertaining to uh, royalty, royal decorum, marriage, divorce, what to do upon the birth of a child and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, who can marry whom also and stuff like that. Yeah, there was also that. But for the Arabs, it was just, just, just one, one law one supposed law, which is that a female descendant of the prophet has to marry a, a, a non, has to marry a descendant of the prophet as well, and uh, more discussions ensued. You know, in the eighteen nineties, nineteen nineteen hundreds, nineteen tens, and finally in the nineteen twenties, it was decided by the Dutch that this does not constitute Arabian recht at all, because. It was only practiced by a few people. And the few that do observe this law were the descendants of the Prophet, the male descendants of the Prophet, uh, who, who originated from Hadramaut and moved to Southeast Asia. Because apparently it wasn't that, it wasn't widely observed in Hadramaut either, according to the Dutch legal authorities who, dis, you know, who, who, who discovered this and, and they think that it's too particular to some people only such that we cannot uphold this. Yeah. So that was what's interesting about this notion of Kafa'ah. Syed Othman bin Yahya, whom I mentioned just now, was a friend of Snook. He was a big proponent of this and called for marriages in two marriages in Singapore to be nullified, actually, between a Sharifa, a female descendant, and an Indian Muslim who was not a descendant. Yeah, and uh, there were rival fatwas, you know, like competing fatwas who won out and uh, said that, no, this is this fulfills the notion of kafa'ah, they are both Muslim and it's fine. Yeah, so that's what happened. This was something that was particular to uh, Southeast Asia. This was something that was a big deal in Southeast Asia, yeah, where descent, descent from the Prophet is often emphasized, even till today. That's that's really interesting because I think that I think that um, the short-term Arab question, as you as you mentioned in your book as well, is something else that we inherit today um, in in our contemporary moment of you know global Islamophobia. Mm. I I was just really interested um, just on the topic of consonances and resonances of the present moment about how the specter of pan-Islam, a movement with origins among South Asian Muslims in the Khilafat movement. How did that inform British and Dutch networks of surveillance? And what was the index of Arabs that was circulated among the British street settlements in Singapore, the British mm. Consulate General in Batavia, as mm. well as the Aden Protectorate? Mm. 
Yeah, the First World War definitely formed a watershed moment in the history of British Arab relations in Southeast Asia because for many reasons. Um, the year 1915 in particular formed a turning point because in February that year, on Chinese New Year, several Muslim Rajput soldiers from the 5th Light Infantry stationed in Singapore rebelled after hearing rumours that they were to be sent to Egypt to fight fellow Muslims under Ottoman rule who were then fighting against the British. So they were caught, sentenced to death uh, or returned to India by the British or, or you know, sentenced to be in jail in Singapore or in, in India. Some Muslims in Singapore seized the opportunity afterwards, you know, after this uh, violent event, to declare their loyalty to the British. And um, this this phenomenon is linked to the politics of representation in the colony where Muslims themselves placed a high premium on ethnic diversity. You know, so they see themselves as being part of different communities and not part of like this undifferentiated Muslim community at this point in time. And uh, so this arrangement was already in place, if you know what I mean, based on uh, separate communities, you know. Uh, and it was echoed in the leadership of mosques, for example, and committees uh, in, the, in the colony, where a minority within the, the large Muslim community was able to dictate policy and influence colonial rulers. So it has a, 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 you know, as you might have guessed, there's a, there is a, there is a racial complexion to this, to this, to this phenomenon, right? Because the people who were part of the support mutiny, the supports were uh, South Asian Muslims, and then the people who quickly, like days, like, like less than two months afterwards, by April sixth. Pledged their royal their their loyalty to the British, and they were mostly Arabs. So you know, one can see that there is a certain maybe as a, a racial rivalry there, ethnic rivalry there. Yeah, so they they were mostly Arabs, you know, at the at the, the 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 Muslim elite, and they uh pledged their loyalty by saying we are not like those people. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, mm. the Arab question is something that. Lee Warner, a British official based in Singapore, called his memo. And Lee Warner, W.H. Lee Warner had a friend in the form of the British Consul General in Batavia. Uh, So based in Java, basically. They wrote copious letters to each other. They were like best friends and shared the same view of how dangerous Arabs were. So it's quite ironic that, you know, in 1915, these Arabs were like, we support you, you know, the, the British, we are going to give you a lot of money in your war course. And you can see in the graph in my book that they did. Um, second only to the to the Jewish population, for example. And yet, you know, in, in, in behind the scenes in 1919, uh, you know, behind the scenes from 1916 onwards, like just a year afterwards, there was this memo that was circulated throughout uh, the British Empire. So not just... Java, not just uh, Aden, but also elsewhere, like in Ceylon, British parts of British India, uh, Cyprus, Palestine later on, and so on and so forth, uh, Iraq later on also, 
of this memo, you know, of and it consists of a list of uh, uh, Arab names, yeah, collected since 1915, since the end of 1915, and it consists of about 200 over 200 uh, names, mostly of Hadrami people, uh, people who were descendants of Hadramis, even though they were based in Java at the time, mostly born in Hadramaut also, so they were not like. They were like not even first generation Hadramis in the Netherlands Indies, but like from born in Hadramaut, and um, yeah, it's called the Arab Question and the Index of Arabs. This list is part of this. It's usually circulated with this memo, yeah. And um, this period at the end of you know this period, which is the interwar period, or rather you know the wartime in and the the ensuing interwar period, is known as a. Uh, I would call it a covert empire, to borrow a term from Priya Satya. And uh, what's interesting is that Arabs on both ends of the Indian Ocean, in Hadramaut and in South Asia, tried to sway the direction of policies to foster their own diverse agendas in South Asia and the Middle East. The British sent an agent known only as Agent D to spy upon uh, followers of the Khilafat movement in the British in 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 Batavia, in Java. Uh, in Surabaya, in Samarang, so he went all over the place. He went all over Java, and what he ended up doing was to spy on Arabs uh, more so than his fellow Indian Muslims. So he's he's an Indian Muslim himself, and that is the extent of what I know about him. That he's an Indian Muslim, and he knows uh, Urdu, Tamil, uh, Arabic, Malay, Indonesian, uh, but not Javanese uh, very well, and. Uh, Sunil Amrit has told me that I should uh, consider making this Agent D, uh, you know, the story of Agent D into a film because he's so mysterious and uh, he himself had a lot of agency in the sense that he he also managed to dictate policy and the British listened to him. He was a very influential agent and the Arabs also liked him a lot and uh, asked him how they can send their sons to Singapore, British India to gain a, an education in English. So he was very powerful as an interlocutor, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I uh, I would definitely watch that film. So, you know, um, to take it back to the courts a little bit, uh, what was the role of the walk um, for our listeners generally translated into religious endowments? In maintaining the durability, convert convertibility, and universality of property wealth, how did it relate to the English legal definition of charity, which was contentious? And um, what were some of the linguistics and translational complications that emerged reading these diasporic walks? So one of the one of my major arguments in my book was that property was the defining quality that determined the that influenced the decisions of the Arab diaspora. So everything they did was actually because of property. One could reduce it to that. Um, and it also property also determined the outcome of family law, and there was constantly an undertow of bias against women, inheriting both power and money. Everyone was guilty of this bias, Muslims and colonial officials alike. So this last chapter on the wafts is the culmination of the principal themes of my book, uh, namely gender, Islamic law, uh, authority, property, religious public divide. Uh, and so on and so forth under colonial law, the wakf is where all these tensions came to a head. 
a workforce established for many reasons. And one of the main reasons is that, uh, you know, a Muslim can sequester a third of their property to establish a wakf. The other two thirds have to be disbursed according to prescribed Islamic formulae derived from the Quran and exegesis. In British colonies, they could sequester their own, they, they could sequester their, their pro- entire property, uh, though. So some of them actually did that. From 1924 onwards, however, Islamic laws of inheritance became the default. So if they didn't have, they don't have a will or something, it would be the default. But previously, they could, their entire property could be disbursed in the form of a will, you know, or like a, a, a waqf is allowed. Nobody would say anything because it's not Muslim jurisdiction, it's colonial jurisdiction. So it's subjected to common law, law, common law anyways. So establishment of waqfs was definitely a way for the Arabs to deprive their daughters from inheriting the full amount, you know, their full property. And waqf deeds tend to favor sons and the paternal line. Uh, by and large, so that's what that's what happened. That's why walks were family walks, private walks were very popular in the Swiss settlements. Yeah, they often the Arabs often established two walks together. Previously, I guess in the Islamic world, it was not two walks. It might be just be one because the public private decision it exists in Islamic law, but not as a hard line as it does in common law. Yeah. So in order for a wolf to be public, it has to be, it has to benefit people who are not of the family. Um, if it only benefits people in the family, there is a private wolf. A private wolf or a family wolf, usually equated as the same, could only last to 21 years after the death of the last living relative at the time that the wolf was created, according to common law. So it could not last forever anymore. Essentially, it's no longer a wolf. Right, okay, but it's still called a wakf. Uh, basically, it's what I would call a colonial wakf. You know, yeah. So it 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 has that word. I mean, it's still called a wakf, but it's essentially it's not a wakf anymore. A public wakf is a wakf that benefits pub, normal society, like common society, people beyond one's family, and that would consist of mosques or cemeteries or madrasas or. Uh, hospitals, medical dispensaries and such and such, yeah. Or, you know, funds meant to dis- be disbursed for meals or for eat and stuff like that, yeah. So that, that's a public wolf. And uh, those can last forever, yeah, according to common law charity. Hmm. That's what emerged in the in British Swiss settlements over time. But there was a pool, there was a Initially, British judges were inclined to failing all wakfs, but then over time they wanted to keep capital within the Swiss settlement, so they started to uh, really, really pass over each term of a wakf deed in order to apply uh, as many terms as possible for it to be a viable trust in the common law sense. So in the end... There was no wakf in the true sense, in the true Islamic sense. Everything was basically a colonial wakf. Mm. Mm. And so just turning now to the conclusion, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about uh, the relationship between the library and the archive. So Brinkley-Messick outlines a distinction between the library and the archive to indicate separate but interdependent textual realms that respectively encompass 
uh, the library encompasses wide-ranging, unmoored intellectual traditions, and the archive localized and context-specific texts. How did this relate to the particular condition of the Arabs in Southeast Asia? Mm. Basically, both the Arab elite in the Swiss settlements and in the Netherlands in this lost control of Islamic law, uh, despite moments of collaboration and partnership, for the Arabs in the Swiss settlements, they asked that the Muhammadan marriage ordinance be passed. And after that, they, they lost control of it. They lost control of administration of Islamic law completely because British judges, rather than uh, Arab judges, right, which were favoured by them, who were favoured by them, were appointed to judge cases on Islamic law. British judges were like, okay, now we'll do it. You know, we are armed with Anglo-Muhammadan law, uh, we are armed with legal precedents in British India, uh, and so we can do this, man. You know, like a hundred years after Anglo-Muhammadan law was started to be developed in in, in, in India in the late 18th century. Uh, they quickly, the British judges quickly realised that uh, there were limitations to this because Anglo-Muhammadan law was based on Hanafi law, whereas most Muslims in Southeast Asia, including the Hadramis, the Southeast Asian Muslims, and the South Asian Muslims who were from the, who were mostly from Southern India, were all Shafi'i. So they were they 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 ran into that problem. But by and large, they still relied on Anglo-Muhammadan legal codes, um, and so uh, Arab Qadis were cut out. You know, there were few cases in the beginning where the Arab Qadi or Johor was consulted by British judges in, in the Swiss settlements in, in Singapore. And also the Arab Qadi or, or Penang was consulted in Penang. But like, you know, after a few cases, like less than five years afterwards, by 1890, I no longer see mention of this Arab Qadi. So the, the Arabs quickly lost control in that sense. Yeah. And British judges were the ones who ruled over everything, over all the cases involving Islamic law. In the Netherlands Indies, they, they lost power really quickly because they never had it in the first place, despite, as I said to you before, moments of collaborations uh, such as Van den Berg and his interlocutor, Hassan Babahir, and uh, uh, the more prominent collaboration between Said Uthman, Ben Yahya with Snohokronia. And so, you know, in that sense, these Arabs, they... These Arab elites, they did not contribute to constructing, uh, 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 constructing the fiqh as at all in Southeast Asia, if you know what I mean. So they did not contribute to constructing a long-lasting, permanent intellectual legal culture in the form of a library. Uh, and in this, I adapt uh, Brinkley Massick's schema. They contribute to to the archive. In a sense that they, it led to a proliferation of documents, which which I, as a historian, uh, could gain access to because they were very litigious. They petitioned, right? They wrote letters to each other to the colonialists, complaining and stuff like that. So they they definitely contributed to the archive, despite contrib- consisting of only less than one percent, you know, of the entire Swiss settlements Muslim population, Swiss settlement subject population. And five to seven percent in the Netherlands Indies, they they their their presence in the archives is is uh, disproportionate, yeah, and uh, so they definitely contributed to the archive. Uh, they they are the writers, but not the authors, so to speak, of Islamic law. 
Yeah. Um, I was wondering what remains of these diverse life worlds today? Throughout your research and field work, what can you conclude about the continued relevance of this history today? So there's still very much a sense amongst minority communities, not just in Southeast Asia, but worldwide, um, that I can see that, you know, there's this notion that there are only a few seats at the table for minorities. So competition amongst minorities could could be more heated sometimes and therefore unhealthy. And by minorities, I mean political minorities. So there might not be numerical minorities, just like the subject populations were not, of course, numerical minorities. Yeah, they were political minorities. So, you know, for example, the queen bee phenomenon, which scholars have observed in groups of women, especially, it's a good example of this. So my book can be treated as a cautionary tale against this kind of toxicity that emerges when societies allow divide and rule arrangements to order and organize their lives vis-a-vis uh, those in power. So the second thing that I also noticed pertain to, to history of Southeast Asia is this notion of uh, this notion of pranakan, which refers to someone who is of Malay descent. Uh, it's something that has lost currency amongst various communities in Southeast Asia. As someone who was raised pranakan in many ways, being very mixed as I grew up in Singapore, Outside my family, it pertains only to uh, the Chinese community. So only the Chinese Pranakan claim this Pranakan status, it seems, in public. So we must ask ourselves why this was so. One reason is that the Chinese population is the largest minority in the Indo-Malay archipelago, perhaps, or perceived to be the largest minority. Whereas the other populations are glossed as something else, you know, like Malay or something, or Bumiputra or Pribumi or something. So what does this mean for other peoples like Arabs or Indian Muslims who are Jawi Pranakan, who prefer to accentuate their Arab and Indianness instead? Is it because it's understood that these Indians and Arabs are of course mixed, whereas Chinese Pranakan have to announce that they are Pranakan because it's, it's, other, it's otherwise not known? I don't have an answer to this, but it is something that, that could be looked at, that should be examined uh, historically. Thirdly, and more broadly, uh, legal pluralism is not going to go away. Legal spheres in the form of public versus private, secular versus religious, form the main grounds for dispute, as we see throughout my book, culminating in the religious institution of the waqf, stripped of its Islamness and imbued with uh, colonial law especially English common law of trusts in the British state settlements. But today it's still referred to as WAPs, which suggests that the label still has a lot of currency. So I really hope my book demonstrates how the policing of the boundaries of forms of law rather than substantive laws in the form of fiqh or ishtihad, for example, is how law works now in many places throughout the world rather than the intricacies of uh, Islamic law. That is so brilliantly put, I think, uh, Fadila, because even the question of hybrid identities and the question of belonging recurs and resurges in present-day Malaysia and Singapore. I'm, I'm just thinking about this huge Nasilama controversy that we had a few weeks ago, where even ideas of Malayness vis-a-vis being Baranakan are so, are, that's such contested terrain, um, where the operative assumption is that all these identities are reified and Bounded as opposed to historically interactive and dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. So, so before we move on to our last traditional question, can you please read us a paragraph from the book? Yes, of course. 
this excerpt is at the core of my argument in the book and I, I would love to read it to you. It is lifted from pages 31 to 32 at the end of my introductory chapter. Most remarkably, these Arabs used the new colonial category of Islamic law to deftly commandeer the terrain of legal pluralism with different levels of success in the Netherlands Indies and the British Strait settlements. They did so partly in the interests of representing Muslims in a new world characterized by colonialism. Mainly, however, they aimed to create a whole new world for themselves. In the end, the copious amounts of documents created by the Arab diaspora formed contingent writings that portrayed more situated histories of Islamic law rather than transforming Islamic legal practices in their vision. The Arab diaspora in Southeast Asia successfully contributed to creating an archive but did not contribute to dominate the library, according to the schema described in Brinkley Messick's Sharia scripts. The library and the archive indicate the separate yet interdependent textual realms that occupy different discursive modalities within an overarching juridical culture, encompassing the book and the document, respectively. In the Netherlands Indies, Dutch bureaucratic scholars enthusiastically built their own library based primarily on context-free, atemporal, orientalist scholarship and, to a limited extent, empirical general observations in Southeast Asia and the rest of the Islamic world, while Adat scholars marginalized the role of Islamic law associated with the Arab diaspora. Although the Arab elite initially dominated the implementation of Islamic law in the Swiss settlements, their efforts eventually led to the cession of interpretive power to British judges who derived their verdicts from their own libraries stocked with Anglo-Muhammadan literature with unpredictable results for Muslim subjects. The archive or documentary sources created by the Arab diaspora in Southeast Asia was formidable, brimming with specific detail, names, various currencies, precise locations, exact property values, but was by nature transient. It turns out that during the late colonial period, members of the Arab diaspora in Southeast Asia were no longer the authors of Islamic law and merely the writers. Wow, thank you so much. Um, I think that also in my book, that was the paragraph I marked up the most. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. Could you just tell us briefly what you're working on now um, about your current and future projects? Mm-hmm. My current book project, tentatively titled Overflow, History of Land Reclamation in the British Empire, focuses on the history of seaward land reclamation, which entails the formation of artificial land surfaces that extend towards the extent outwards over the sea using advanced geoengineering techniques. Intensive land reclamation transformed coastal areas from the late 19th century onwards in places like Hong Kong, British Borneo, the parts of the Caribbean, Gibraltar, uh, later on in Palestine as well, uh, Penang and Singapore. So I, I look at how the coastal regions were transformed. Uh, so my next project is basically looking at environmental history and legal history as well because uh, it concerns maritime law and, and you know land law as well. And uh, there's this region at which they reclaimed, 
called the foreshore, and that causes a a huge problem, huge legal problems for a lot of people because they were a lot of people live there. There's a lot of property on the foreshore, uh, and then this foreshore was seized by uh, British imperial officials, and you know the compensation was a huge nightmare for them, and so on and so forth. So there was there's a lot there's a lot involved in the in this book, uh, maritime law, admiralty law, uh, property law, and uh, w- you know, if you get land from from somewhere, does who has jurisdiction over that land? You know what I mean? Like if you Singapore today gets land from all over the place, from uh, Malaysia in the past, Indonesia also in the past, and uh, Vietnam until recently, Philippines until recently, and now Cambodia. So, you know, who has authority? Which jurisdiction does that does that land uh, lie in? You know, once it's brought over, shipped over to Singapore, is it Singapore jurisdiction? Is it international law? Uh, is it the the jurisdiction of the of the land of origin? So it's very interesting to see all these things. Yeah. That's my that's my current book project. That's really interesting because I I know that Singapore has has had around twenty two percent of um its original land mass increase since since independence, right? With, mm-hmm. yeah. with just a ton of you know land reclamation. In fact, a yeah. lot of the landmarks that I t- I I think tourists would associate with Singapore, like Marina mm-hmm. Bay Sands or Correct. Gardens by the Bay, they're all entirely yeah, built on reclaimed land. They're all reclaimed land. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's incredible, and I'll definitely be looking up for for your next book as mm-hmm. well as uh, your articles in the meantime. Mm. But thank you so much for joining us thank today you so much. Uh, for our interview. I really and enjoyed this conversation. For for listening to today's mm. episode, in which we explored fluid jurisdictions by Professor Nofa uh, by Professor Nofa Yahya, published by Cornell University Press in twenty twenty. You can find the book on Amazon and other outlets. This is your host Calvin Ng, and I'm Janala Adin. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.